to introduce you to our new favorite friend, Wendy, who will just give you her own introduction and tell you guys about herself. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for the (laughs) invitation. So my name's Dr. Wendy Ingram, and I am presently a psychiatric epidemiology fellow at Johns Hopkins in the Department of Mental Health at the School of Public Health. And um, my background is actually that I received my PhD in molecular and cell biology from UC Berkeley. And I'm also very active in graduate student mental health advocacy. So that's a little bit about me. Sweet. So first off, got to ask, how was it, what drew you to your career in um, the STEM fields? What was it like being a getting your doctorate degree and especially, you know, since you are a woman and we will ask these questions because disparities do continue to exist in the world. Did you, what was like being a woman in a STEM career? Well, I'll start at the beginning, I guess. How did I get into a STEM career in the first place? So, so you know how people often, like when you're a little kid, you have these, like, if I had a superpower, this is what it would be. Yeah. And some people are like, I wish I could fly. I wish I could teleport. I wish I could go through walls. I wish I could shoot fire out of my eyes, those sorts of things. Mine was always that I wanted to be able to read people's minds because Ah. I really wanted to know how, what, what was leading to people doing the things that they were doing and saying the things that they were saying Hmm. that just always fascinated me for as long as I could, I could remember. And it didn't hurt that my, both of my parents are veterinarians. Hmm. So I had, I was exposed to a lot of science, a lot of medicine and a lot of really interesting medicine in, in various animals because they're both exotic specialists. That's awesome. And so I grew up, my mom was the vet at the Phoenix Zoo for mm-hmm. 20 years wow. and my dad and mom both engaged in a lot of wildlife veterinary medicine. So I actually grew up with eagles and hawks and owls in my backyard, which was pretty awesome. That is awesome. (laughs) So from a very, very early age, I was encouraged to be interested in biology and medicine. And I didn't follow in my parents' footsteps, Mm -hmm. though, because I was so interested in the mind and the human mind. Mm -hmm. And so when I went to undergrad, I was a psychology and a biochemistry molecular biophysics major. And that actually is what led me to the path that I ended up taking. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Oh, and so terrible idea! I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I hope you won't take offense, but <laughs> I became very frustrated in my abnormal psychology class, learning mm-hmm. that we had very little understanding of what causes mental illness and psychiatric disease and We didn't even know how the medicines work that we did have and the treatments. And so that was very frustrating to me in stark contrast to what I was learning in my biochemistry program. Mm -hmm. And so I got into a biochemistry lab my freshman year, and we were studying the protein evolution of Mm -hmm. small viral proteins. And it was amazing what we could experimentally discern about biology and making minor genetic changes to to influence the structure and the function of proteins and then downstream behaviors and all kinds mm-hmm. of things. So that just, you know, I fell in love with the scientific process in that hands-on biochem lab. That's which awesome. Was so cool. So I still have a lot of love for structural biochemistry today, which you can tell from the dress I'm wearing uh, <laughs> that has the crystal structure of of insulin on it. <laughs> Do you ever offend any diabetics? They usually don't know what it is. Mm. <laughs> so I keep my mouth shut. Gotcha. What has it been like 
being a woman in a career that's mostly, you know, has traditionally been dominated by men. Did you ever, it sounds like from your family perspective, you were always encouraged to do whatever interested you and especially in the sciences uh, to do whatever you wanted. Did you encounter any different culture when you started uh, doing your further studies beyond undergrad, doing your grad studies and your doctorate? You know mm-hmm. what? Also, I'll start back in high school, oh, actually, great. because there was a um, a very interesting encounter that occurred when that I don't think my male counterparts probably mm-hmm. experienced, and it's really unfortunate because obviously. I have a very strong interest and capacity for science yeah. <laughs> and uh, having earned my PhD all, all this time later. But when I was in high school, I loved chemistry. I loved mm-hmm. biochemistry or, or biology. I loved math. I was very, very good at it. Sometimes I was a little lazy about it though <laughs> <laughs> because I got it the first time I did it. I didn't have to do 45 Ooh. problems, <laughs> which sometimes hurts your grades if it's based on homework. Completion, but regardless, I was in all the honors classes, mm-hmm. and I loved the sciences. And when I was in high school, I think it was maybe my, I think it was my junior year. I wanted to take AP Chemistry, AP Human Physiology and Anatomy, mm-hmm. and I was in AP English. I was in AP. I wanted to take Physics, Chemistry human physiology and anatomy, and trigonometry all at the same time. And my counselor actually refused to sign my schedule. And she wanted me to drop one of my science classes. And at the time, I was also in orchestra. Mm -hmm. I was also an athlete. I played basketball and volleyball and ran cross country. Mm -hmm. And she essentially was trying to stop me from taking the classes that I wanted to take and my parents approved of in order to, it was unclear to me what exactly was happening. And I just, as as a high school student, was very frustrated and was certain that I would be able to do it and Mm. that this was what I wanted to do. And she was really strong arming me and trying to discourage me from taking all the science and math classes that I was, that I was interested in. Wow. And what was, (laughs) I found out about this later (laughs) was that my human physiology and anatomy teacher, uh, Mr. Ware, shout out, fabulous (laughs) science teacher, he stood up for me. So he actually went to her once I told him that I wasn't going to be able to take his class because my counselor wasn't going to let me take all the classes. Mm -hmm. And he went and confronted her, I think in front of a lot of people too, and basically was like put her through the ringer in order to say, how dare you stop this young woman from pursuing the level of coursework in in science and, and math that she would like to. And so after he spoke to her, I was able to take all of the classes I wanted. Wow. wow. Yeah, <laughs> and I got bananas. straight A's. <laughs> wow. That's so, badass. <laughs> yeah. So it's really amazing like how much early experiences can mm-hmm. influence the the outcomes. So if I didn't have advocates and male advocates mm-hmm. like standing up for me and helping me out along the way and believing in me, I, things could have turned out a little bit differently. And actually, I I did find out later as well that there was a computer science course that AP Computer Science offered at my high school, and Mm -hmm. zero people ever told me about this. Hmm. Wow. And now as a bioinformatician, <laughs> years and years later, <laughs> I really wish I had learned programming a heck of a lot earlier. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Wow. So you were dealing with pushback pretty early, and it sounds like that was a big turning point. Yeah. And it's been consistent ever since. And I think the main thing about being a woman in STEM is that I do always have to think about it every step of the way. Mm. It's always on my mind. And not that it weighs on me because I've become very successful and I've been able to navigate Mm -hmm. um, very clearly. But there's a lot that 
I think about that my husband, who mm-hmm. also has a degree in molecular and cell biology, has never had to think about. And these are these are things that I discuss with him. I would discuss with some of my colleagues and things mm-hmm. like that, but there's there's a level of conversation you have with your spouse that <laughs> you then are like, wait, you've never had to think about <laughs> this, really? Like, ugh. <laughs> so some of the examples of that would be the first time that I walk into a classroom mm-hmm. when I was TAing for the first time as a graduate student, graduate student instructor. I thought very carefully about what I was going to wear Hmm. that day Mm. to look professional, to distance myself from the students and establish that I am the authority, I'm the teacher in this Mm. classroom. And it was funny because I was at Berkeley where Mm -hmm. Berkeley casual is just a thing. (laughs) Everyone is casual. But I felt like it was not the right move to go in there wearing what I would normally wear on a day-to-day basis, that I needed to dress up, but also make sure that I was dressed more conservatively, even though it was a hot California day. Mm. I wasn't going to wear shorts. I was going to wear slacks. I Mm -hmm. wasn't going to wear open-toed shoes. I was going to wear nicer shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to wear a button-down shirt, but also like sweater vest over it so that there was clearly like, you know, see again, button-up shirts and women (laughs) (laughs) are not the same as button-up shirts on men. (laughs) We have more logistical issues. (laughs) But Hmm. any thoughts, Cody? (laughs) I I agree. These are the kinds of things that I've never really had to think about. And I guess it is interesting that there are so many challenges that I was able to be blissfully unaware of for so long. And it's, I mean, it is something that clearly both men and women need to think about if we want to move the field forward because we don't want to lose a good mind because they get shoved away over something silly. Like if your situation had gone the other way, it could have very well led you down a different path. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that and reflecting that it's something that shouldn't all be my burden Mm -hmm. or other women in science's burden to think about and navigate. Having male allies and collaborators and colleagues really pay attention and be interested in knowing more about what it is we're experiencing and how they can help is really awesome. And I feel like I've been very lucky along the way with fantastic male mentors and male colleagues And it's really awesome and super heartening for me every time male colleague steps up and notices something or apologizes for something or asks me my opinion about something. And and so that's really wonderful. So anybody who is already doing that, keep it up. (laughs) (laughs) And anyone who's been shy about asking about their female colleagues' experiences, I would encourage you to try to make space and time for asking your female colleagues about their experiences so that you can better understand and be aware and help them navigate implicit and explicit biases that we encounter all the time that you may not be exposed to or aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's these kinds of things it sounds like are all really silent. Like, certainly I had never heard a, a story like that within science. I guess it's not altogether shocking given some of the other things in the culture. But yeah, it seems like it could easily build up and lead to bigger disparities over time with these kinds of unconscious biases. Yeah. 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 And it's so that it has been one of my kind of ongoing passions and things that I've been interested in. And I'm action is what I do. <laughs> Whenever mm-hmm. I experience or see injustices, I, I like to see what I can do to help change that. And which is part of the reason why I'm so excited to be on this podcast. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Fabulous folks. Because <laughs> you are like-minded. <laughs> Save um, the world. <laughs> Save the world. <laughs> and so when I was an undergrad, I joined and helped run an organization called Women in Biological Sciences. Mm -hmm. And so while I was there, we focused on trying to 
create space to talk about exactly these things and get women explicitly, but also all underrepresented minorities Mm -hmm. in science to come participate in real discussions about what what are the barriers to staying in science if you're a woman? What are the barriers to getting the right recommendations to getting mm-hmm. to the next level for maybe underrepresented minorities that that other people in the mainstream science don't know about or mm-hmm. aren't paying attention to. I was lucky in that I had two parents who had both had terminal medical degrees. Um, yeah. and, and that's not if you don't have that you don't necessarily have the connections and have the encouragement let alone the socioeconomic status to be able to pursue science full time right away like i yeah. was so a lot of students that i knew that were interested in science and very good at science couldn't work in a lab because they had to work part time during college just mm-hmm. to get by And that's a very different scenario when you look four years down the road and I'm applying to grad schools versus somebody else who was, did really well in all the same classes I did, Mm -hmm. but wasn't able to work for free or work for credit um, in a research lab. They had to work for money. Yeah. So those those are things in, that we we wanted to look at and highlight and focus on in order to start the conversations about talking about how we can address that and create additional opportunities. And I think that that's a very long conversation that's going to continue for quite some time. But it was it was really encouraging for me to help participate and break down those barriers and break down my understanding yeah. of these things too. Yeah. Absolutely. I I agree. I think that's one of the biggest aspects to winning at this goal of equality and just this goal of respecting other people is to always be open to acknowledging your own biases and always be open to educating yourself. I think all three of us in this room have probably had experiences where we've learned something new just by being open and listening and realizing that we can never understand the breadth of um, human experiences and never, you know, fully know what someone else is going through until we take the time to understand them. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite things about psychiatry is just mm-hmm. understanding how much you can absorb from the understanding of all the different walks of life out there. Yeah. And it is it scares me quite a bit that the the systems used to determine who gets into these places, whether it be science, whether whether it be medical professions, they have become so easy to game, especially by people who have various forms of privilege, that Mm -hmm. it is scary that we're going to end up with a very restricted set of voices. And like one of the clearer examples is since terminal medical and graduate education takes place in sort of childbearing prime time, there's an implicit challenge to any women who want to have families. And I feel like we need to, if we want to have equal voices from men and women, then we need to figure out how to be a lot more flexible in that whole thing. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, it scares me that we're going to have all these, I guess, factors leading to unequal attrition over time. Yeah, absolutely. And the attrition is super real. There was a recent study that came out where... I don't remember the exact numbers, but maybe you can you can figure those out in the post. <laughs> but they were looking at women who take time off or take maternity leave, mm-hmm. who have PhDs in yeah. the sciences and STEM, and the likelihood of them not returning to full-time scientific careers is astronomical. Like wow. it's, I, I think it's probably in the range of like like maybe 30% of men after they take some paternity leave or something mm-hmm. like that yeah. will not return to a, a full-time mm-hmm. academic career, whereas closer to like 70% of women wow. won't. 
Wow. And I mean, it's, it's something that I have to think about right now in my next career step. And so I'm finishing up my postdoc probably in the next year. I'm on the job market. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there are considerations of if I'm going to apply for tenure track faculty positions, mm-hmm. the next uh, five to seven years are going to be the most important time for me to set up my lab, establish mm-hmm. my career, start training people, get grants, uh, prove myself in every way you have to in order to earn tenure and establish yourself as a leader in your scientific field. And by the time that that's done, I will be in my 40s. And so I have to, if I'm going to have kids, consider that, play that into. And it's not the same as if my husband decided to go into academia. Yeah. um, Because while he would, I'm sure, be very as involved with having the child as possible, he will not be the one carrying the child, making yeah. the child. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is that is an unequal burden <laughs> that we women have to bear, literally. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and it is. Yeah, it's a really frustrating reality because. There's just so little room in our fields for any kind of side pursuit, whether it be something as small as wanting to take some vacation for more than a week or something as large as forming a new life. You know, (laughs) like (laughs) it's I, I think we as a society have to decide that we're going to make extra effort to be inclusive, to try to level the playing field or we're going to end up with a very restricted set of voices in certain areas. And I feel like that's got to be damaging down the line in ways that we can't, we'll never know the the actual toll, but we'll be able to see from numbers like you were describing that we're losing something important. I I did want to back up for a second because you are the first pure scientist we've had on the show. We've had a couple of physician scientists. But but none... It's always good to experiment. None of your ilk. So can we talk a little bit for the people listening at home who are at a stage in their lives where they might be thinking about being a scientist, but they don't know what all is involved? You talked a little bit about how your career got started, but... This description of tenure kind of got me started. Can you describe some of the realities of getting to where you have and what your challenges have been, what you have to overcome in order to be a scientist, just to maybe help people understand that process? Sure. Um, So I'll start off with just kind of like a general overview of of what it kind of involves. Because one of the things being, having been a PhD student, I would get asked by my mentees and students, uh, undergrad students, uh, you know, if they were considering science, Mm -hmm. like, and and advising them in these sorts of ways. And, And the reality really is hard to describe. And so my main suggestion was always that if you love science and you're thinking about getting a PhD in in research, mm-hmm. that I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to try out a research lab. Mm-hmm. Go embed yourself. And I think that that is a good thing in general. So if you're interested in becoming a physician, go shadow somebody and maybe intern or be candy stripe at a hospital system. Like go get direct exposure. And in fact, I would usually encourage a variety of lab experience too, because just I ended up in a biochemistry lab my freshman year and loved it and loved my mentor and loved my lab mates and was just kind of an adopted full-on pseudo PhD (laughs) in the lab, even though I was just an undergrad, I was just there all the time. I just loved it. And so I stuck with that the entire time that I was an undergrad, Mm -hmm. but I also took a year off between undergrad and grad school in order to get a different experience in a different lab. And so I was doing 
protein structural evolution research as an undergrad. And then I also, um, I then went on to work in a mouse model schizophrenia research lab at a hospital system. And so I wanted to gain experience in a different lab with different people at a different stage in their career Mm -hmm. too, because all of that really is dramatically different. And it was a little bit of a process. I was pre-med and then I was like, Ooh, maybe I'll do an MD PhD like Dr. Weston over here. Mm, terrible idea. <laughs> and then I was like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> but um, I, I did it with the experience I had in this, in the second lab that I joined the mm-hmm. neuroscience lab. I ended up realizing that I really wanted an education to get my PhD in as basic of science as I possibly could. That was really important for me. And it was with the long-term goal of hoping to understand and lead, uh, help lead to better understanding of the underlying molecular mechanisms of mental illness. And so from day one, stage one, I've always been focused on mental illness, Mm -hmm. but... I realized that I needed to learn and then bring a different perspective Mm -hmm. to the mental health research field. And I've been delighted that it seems to be working out so far. That's Uh, awesome. (laughs) But the overall description of what it means to go into research science, to get a PhD, is that you spend your time in the lab. If you don't love the process of thinking about things you do not know the answer to, digging into the current research, following... If you like getting stuck in wiki Wikipedia rabbit holes <laughs> where you're just like click through to the next yeah. thing and click through to the next thing and oh now I want to learn more about that like that's that's a really good starting point <laughs> for research because yeah. you you start off with this information gathering what's known what about my question what's not known you look for the holes mm-hmm. and And then you set up these things that these experiments to try to test specific questions and Mm -hmm. you try to hold as many things as possible the same and change one thing at a time Mm -hmm. in order to try to chip away at these answers that you once you have an answer, mm-hmm. you have to be your own biggest skeptic because you you have to be really fundamentally interested in arriving at the correct answer mm-hmm. um, and be willing to work with what one of my professors called truth with a lowercase t. <laughs> <laughs> it's often misspelled as well. So that's what science is. <laughs> but you keep working at it. You never leave it at that. And that's actually one of the things that it reminds me of a story of when I was an undergrad, I came home from working in the lab for the first semester and Mm -hmm. I was in love with it. And I was like, mom, 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 research is so great. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Have you ever done research? And she then revealed to me (laughs) for the very first time that she had worked on a master's in ornithology at Cornell. And I think that she ended up doing, conducting the research, the actual like lab research in Arizona, but the, she, I was like, really? And I just grilled her and asked her all these details about it. And it was fascinating. So what she was interested in was the question of, can you give birds blood transfusions? Whoa. And so I was like, ooh, cool, interesting question. What did you do? And she was like, well, the first thing I had to do was find out what level, what percentage of bird blood volume did a bird have to lose before it was going into shock and needed a blood transfusion. And so she decided to be thorough. And so she chose two different kinds of birds, a dove and a cockatiel. And the first step was, well, how much blood volume do these animals have? So step one, and then she found that out, and then she decided to say, okay, so how much blood loss do they have to experience in order to go into shock? And for the cockatiel, I think it was about like 25 to 40% blood volume loss, Mm -hmm. and then it went into shock and it died. Mm -hmm. And she was like, okay. And then with the dove, it was 120% of its blood volume. What? So they're capable of sorcery. 
because Whoa. you it, doves have this totally different physiological response to Weird. losing little bits of blood. Wow. And so the they have an ability that cockatiels clearly don't, where they're actually sucking out the wow. um, interstitial-like fluids into their blood to keep them from going into shock from Dude. loss of blood. Isn't that bonkers? That's crazy. So... That complicates things. <laughs> but at the end, so she told me all these other stories and pieces of information that she had learned That's from awesome. conducting all these experiments. And at the end of the day, I was like, but this is amazing. Like, yeah. did you publish it? Is it out there? And she was like, no, because <laughs> it didn't really answer my question. And I was like, but you found out all these other interesting things along the way and you never published it. And she was like, yeah, I got really annoyed with research because it just led to more and more questions. I never answered my question. Yeah. And it led to 15 million other questions. Wow. And I was like, but that's the best part of science. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that that's a pretty good, that's how I think about whether you might want to be a clinician versus a scientist. If you find it frustrating rather than exciting to end up with a ton more questions at the end of your set of experiments and your work than you started with, then that makes a pretty good scientist. Yeah. That is an awesome description. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting line of research. And one of the things that came to mind while you were talking about that is just it is shocking how much science is probably done that nobody knows about because of this publication problem. Like, I mean, I've personally done a few studies and lots of review work that has never made it out there. And it's just a shame that there are so many questions that are probably answered or partially answered somewhere and we just don't have that information. So sometime we should do like a whole podcast just about how crazy the publication system is right now. Yeah. But that's true. It's it's just as probably enlightening to learn about that as it is to learn about what is published in the news or what kinds of things do people hear about from anywhere, from the CDC, from from other organizations. Yeah, I mean and when something's published in a peer-reviewed source, it's automatically got all kinds of authority. So that's when you end up with huge trouble if something something incorrect ends up in there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, my, my mentor at UC Berkeley, one of my mentors, Mike Eisen, was one of the co-founders of the Public Library of Science. Oh. And so he is now going to be the head director or editor for eLife as well, which Ooh. is another <laughs> new, bigger, open access focused uh, dedicated system. And so Public Library of Science was really the first situation that was created that mandated that every single uh, peer-reviewed manuscript that went through it would become immediately and 100% freely available to anybody and everybody. Yeah. Can we back up just for people who aren't familiar with the process? Can we explain how insane it is that... (laughs) how, How do we get from Joe taxpayer's money going to Joe or Jane scientist's lab, doing a science, and then somehow ending up behind a private paywall. <laughs> care, to, to, care to walk us through that? <laughs> um, uh, sure. So when people pay their taxes, a unfortunately small amount of it goes to the National Institutes of Health and National Science mm-hmm. Foundation. And these are two government-run granting agencies. They also do intramural research themselves, but one of the major, major things that they do is that they take taxpayer money and organize it in a way to be distributed in in grants to Mm -hmm. different researchers and who are interested in doing specific projects. And so the main thing that research professors end up doing with their time is not working in the lab themselves and Mm -hmm. conducting the research, it's actually grant writing. That's the bulk of their time, Mm. is writing the next grant, which will then hopefully get funded so that they can continue to pay for their postdocs, their staff, their graduate students, and uh, maybe some undergrads. Mm -hmm. And oh yeah, all of the reagents and (laughs) costs affiliated with running a a laboratory as well. So, and conducting the actual experiments. So when that, so say a professor who's writing a grant, they 
submit it to the National Institutes of Health. Then the National Institutes of Health get a study group together. So these are other researchers who are prominent in that particular field, and they will assemble usually in the D.C. area and review half of the grants that were submitted. So they'll partition grants up into being reviewed and not reviewed. And so if you are in the top 50th percentile, you will actually have your grant read and talked about. And so that's immediately half of the grants are just not even looked at. How is that half determined, if not by reading it? So... That's not being discussed. I misspoke. So it's read by a Mm -hmm. subset of the study group members. And if it doesn't reach a high enough scoring by all three members or average Mm -hmm. scoring, then it will be the top. So all these independent research or this... The study section of researchers will be assigned a subset of the grants that are going to be considered Mm. at all or have been submitted, and then they will give it a score of some sort themselves, and Mm. then they'll accumulate. It depends on... Depends on a bunch of different things. How many people actually end up reading your grant or skimming it, as the case may be, mm-hmm. uh, and they'll determine if it's they'll determine the score. They'll submit it, and then if it ends up on the bottom half of the mm-hmm. score pile, right, score pile, you don't even get talked about wow. during the study section. Yeah. Then, so half of them will though. They'll at least be talked about, and so then they'll kind of end up with one person in the room who is going to argue the case or kind of summarize and talk about what the grant is and why we should talk about it. And I've never sat on a study section, so mm-hmm. having somebody else another time like really talk about the gritty details mm-hmm. of it yeah, would be beneficial. But from what I understand, which again is <laughs> the fact that I have submitted grants and I am not like yeah, hardcore aware of all of the yeah. logistics that yeah. go into it. <laughs> um, That's a mystery. The mysterious process, as yeah. I understand it, involves like you might get talked about for two minutes. Somebody might say your grant might get presented by somebody in the room. And then the other people are like, well, what do you think? Should we talk about it? And they'll be like, eh. And then you're done. (laughs) (laughs) Or they'll be like, yeah, I think we should talk about it. And uh, someone else might pipe up and say, I was one of the initial reviewers of that one too. And I found this fatal flaw. And this is why I think we shouldn't score them highly. Mm -hmm. And you're done. So anyway, so like you go through this whole process and then a subset of the, the grants that get talked about will get good scores. And these high scores, even if you get an incredibly high score, you still might not get funded Yeah, because there's limited funds. Yeah. And while we're really lucky in that, we as a nation are fortunate to have had the Congress increase the scientific funding budgets the last two cycles, which is great Mm -hmm. because it hadn't been increased for quite some time. Mm -hmm. But even so, it's still incredibly difficult to get a grant. It's even more so difficult if you are a young investigator Mm -hmm. and don't have a long history of successful granting and, and, and publication record. And so the NIH and the NSF are trying to do various things in order to improve the chances of young investigators, but it's still, the the numbers are staggering, how much money just goes to a few top labs. They're, they're almost kind of like fiefdoms, where yeah. there's some like head of the field mm-hmm. that then collaborates off with these smaller, slightly younger mm-hmm. labs. But if you're not in with the big head honchos, the, the likelihood of you being able to get those grants yourself, um, not in collaboration with them is difficult. And that actually goes back to being a woman in STEM, like Mm. these and and kind of legacy issues Mm -hmm. with the who has been dominant in the field for so long and the way that the granting structures really go Mm -hmm. is that if you're judged by how much grant funding you've had in the past and how much you've accomplished in the past, then you're inherently biasing it towards the, the traditional 
usually white male <laughs> individuals. <laughs> and so so there's problems with inherent biases where the big labs, the Nobel labs, people who have received Nobel prizes for um, medicine or physics or whatnot will, if you look at the, I mean, the numbers are there and very, very clear how many men versus women they accept as mm -hmm. graduate students and as postdocs. And the people who leave those labs are much, much, much more likely to go on to be successful themselves in acquiring funding. Because guess what? They're the ones getting letters from these incredibly well-funded individuals saying, I believe in this person, I trained this person, and I will support them in you know these kinds of ways. Da, 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 da. And so letters of support and legacy of and kind of academic family trees are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that it's not really a system where the best ideas get funded. It's the best ideas that also are well connected and have been lucky enough to get into the the research labs that have the most pull and the most respect already. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what's happening with movies right now is there's just this huge risk aversion where you can see a massive, massive budget go to some safe project like a reboot or a continuing franchise, but it's really rare to see something completely new and fresh come out that's got good support. Yeah, that's mm. true. And that kind of makes me think about how television has always been a much more innovative uh, medium for film. I know we're getting into all kinds of uh, categories, but I will link this back to what you said, how now with online streaming of things and Netflix, you can see a lot of shows that depict subjects and people who may have not made it onto mainstream cable TV. So in that same vein, is there an equivalent in scientific research of something maybe like the, the more open access databases that you're talking about where people can sort of showcase things that are new and maybe not wouldn't get money and funding in the traditional way? So I've heard about a number of attempts at mm -hmm. those kinds of things, but I would not say that I am aware of okay. any successful projects. So there's a friend of mine right now uh, out in the Bay Area who is a trained immunologist, received his PhD from uh, UC Berkeley in molecular and cell biology, a brilliant and totally awesome guy. And he was so frustrated by the price gouging mm -hmm. of insulin that oh, yeah. he is trying to work with a bunch of people to create a community-based free insulin lab. Wow. wow. To because it lit, I mean literally, if you I mean it's very it's very challenging to maybe and it's a very niche kind of thing to have developed the skills to be yeah. able to massively express proteins and know all the things that go into producing a structurally and medically competent like protein but if anything if anybody knows that it's molecular and cell biology phds who yeah. mm -hmm. were in uh, uc berkeley <laughs> biochem lab or immunology lab mm -hmm. and so he was like he was like i can make this I can make this in the lab. Why it, does it cost somebody? Like I, I can make it for pennies, like less wow. than pennies. Wow. Why, why is it costing people thousands and thousands of dollars? Why are people dying because they can't afford enough insulin to take all of their shots that they need throughout the day or through yeah. the month? Yeah. It just was horrific that to him and so unfair. And so he is working with a group, kind of a guerrilla science, community science group that are trying to address this issue and try to say like, hey, we have the skills, we have the knowledge, let's just make open access medicine, especially for these old things that like the yeah. original insulin uh, patent, I think, was sold to somebody for like a dollar because wow. the inventors of it or the developers yeah. of it had essentially like they wanted it to be completely free yeah. wow. or as close to free as possible to anybody who was suffering from diabetes. Yeah. And so that was something that it's something that's so bizarre and 
what they're most worried about is not being able to build their capacity. Like if they got one big grant, they would be able to buy enough equipment and they certainly have the scientific Mm know-how in order to mass produce, sterilely generate plenty for Mm -hmm. starting off just the community around them that doesn't have access to this at all, but have diabetes. And so they would be able to make a huge impact in just in their community. Mm -hmm. But the main thing that they're concerned about is the legality Mm -hmm. is interacting with, or the threat of interacting with the pharmaceutical companies that are charging an insane amount for these these life-saving and required drugs for a chronic condition so legal issues competition with pharma dealing with the government and yeah the government should be like the fda should be involved in making sure that you know they're not just making something that could potentially hurt someone but these are people who are fully capable of, <laughs> they yeah. have the most excellent sterile technique. <laughs> yeah. I can attest to that. So they would by no means be worried about passing evaluations mm-hmm. and adhering to guidelines and restrictions and, and oversight. But they're most concerned about the legality, the legal repercussions of going against pharma, trying to create something for free. And so it's 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 really a tough bizarre situation when companies can get away with that sort of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, there are a number of issues that I think will ultimately need to be addressed in science. Like things like that are really scary. And I'm sure the liability of something like that, even if they got through all the barriers, then suppose somebody misused their insulin or some sort of mishap occurred and they decided that the producers were liable well they're not they're not building up money to defend themselves against a lawsuit if they're going in this nonprofit humanitarian sense right but the other thing i wanted to make sure we brought up was on the topic of these open access journals the vast majority until very recently of published research ends up behind a paywall where you can't see the research that your tax money paid for because That's it's true. being published in some sort of private journal. <clears throat> They've, I guess, probably close to a decade ago now, they, the NIH made it so like after a year they have to make it publicly available, oh, right? okay. But even then, you're behind the times unless you're already plugged into yeah. a major institution. So there's, there's issues of access like that that just continue to add to this problem of, of it being less of a meritocracy and more of a yeah. pyramid scheme in some cases, yeah. I fear. And that's actually, so I went back too far, starting to answer that question, <laughs> and then we got stuck on how the grant situation. But the for the publication situation, one of, one of the things that my mentor would say is that taxpayers are paying for, for the research three times mm-hmm. with the pay for access modality that still is the dominant way in which our science is published in peer review. And so what you do is you pay your taxes and then those taxes go to pay for the grants to pay for the science. And then you end up finishing your project, write up a manuscript and submit it to one of these journals. Mm -hmm. And then they solicit free reviewers from within the scientific community. Mm -hmm. They do not pay the reviewers. And they argue that if they paid them, then it would be biasing their response. And Mm. so the reviewers end up being professors and or maybe postdocs every now and again, gets bumped all the way down to a particularly good uh, graduate student who's familiar with the work and has the ability, the knowledge and no uh, direct conflicts of interest Mm -hmm. in reviewing the science. And then they will take hopefully quite a bit of time, actually, like Mm -hmm. pouring through this paper, this manuscript from someone else to identify potential issues, like the most egregious of which would be this is fabricated or this is plagiarized. Mm -hmm. And then to the more scientifically satisfying and important aspects other than, you know, the worst possible cases would be to identify maybe holes in Mm -hmm. the science. They'll suggest, they'll suggest new experiments to potentially do or controls to compare to that maybe the authors hadn't thought about or hadn't completed yet. And then 
they'll raise issues with also the interpretation and maybe holes in the background. So in the in the introduction section, if they kind of skipped over a whole chunk of the literature that mm. is relevant to the current manuscript, they'll make all these points and point them out and raise these issues and then tell the journals, the journal editors, here are all my issues and I think you should accept it if they make all of these changes or accept with minor revisions. That is everyone's favorite. And or reject. This is not a high okay. quality paper. This this doesn't this isn't up to snuff. Or I have these issues with it that don't seem like they're reasonably addressable. But these reviewers are usually university professors mm. who their income is coming from grants. Yeah. So the 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 taxpayers pay for the science originally. They also pay for the reviewers' time because they're not getting compensated by the journals. Mm-hmm. And then the journals, if they do accept the publication mm-hmm. and then put it up, they will put up a paywall. It will cost anyone who's not affiliated with a institute that pays a tremendous amount in order yeah. to have access to many journals yeah. that may be relevant to their researchers and their students. If you are just my brother who yeah. got a degree in physiology but is no longer at a university institution, if he gets a, if he develops a disease that he wants to read up on and he clicks around on PubMed where the abstracts are available but the entire manuscripts aren't, he will go through and and be like, oh, this is a really relevant article to my new disease, or maybe my mom developed cancer. Mm-hmm. And so I want to read about the latest research on yeah. her cancer and treatments that are available. So the lay person yeah. will end up running into something that says, give us $35 and we'll give it to you for 24 hours. Yeah. Or wow. <laughs> or pay us like sometimes it's it's exorbitant but it's yeah. usually kind of in that ballpark 30 to 40 to 50 dollars wow per article yeah that's and crazy. that goes directly to the publisher not to the researcher wow. not to the taxpayer so Jeez. this is where you get that you're paying for it three times. Wow. And even in the best cases with these open access journals, they usually charge the research lab sometimes a couple thousand dollars to put it out. I mean, they have to keep wow. the lights on somehow, yeah. but there is a lot of money involved. Yeah. I will say, I think we should make sure people are aware of this. In the vast, vast majority of cases, if you, no matter who you are, want to read a scientific article, you can email the authors and if they are still checking that particular email address, they will probably send you the article for free if you're polite. Oh, that's yeah? cool to know. You don't even have to be polite. Wow. <laughs> I mean, coming out with threats or, or, or insults is maybe not a good idea, but if you just email any researcher that's affiliated with the study, they are fully able to and willing to send wow. you the publication Wow, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we should get that shortcut out there because yeah. that's what we're doing here. We're bridging gaps. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And this also, just hearing all of this politics of science research and all of the costs that are associated with it, it makes me feel even better about what we're doing here in terms of bridging that gap, bringing experts on and also doing our own sort of summaries of articles that we found, Cody, thankfully for free, according, you know, thanks to the great institute that we belong to, Johns yeah. Hopkins. Uh, <laughs> it, it just helps me feel even better about what we're doing because it sounds like it's really hard for people in the community to have the time, the money, and the know-how of how to navigate this information that isn't well, um, easy, easily available online. Yeah, and that's if I can get on my soapbox momentarily. Is, momentarily, yes. <laughs> is the the idea is so if people are paying taxes to have science done, I think yeah. the idea is that it should be a public good. And if we're not communicating the deliverable back in yeah. a meaningful way, then I feel like we're only doing part of our jobs. Yeah. And so I feel like it's really important to get things packaged and delivered and translated into a way that they make meaningful change for people outside of the scientific and medical communities if if it's going to be something that yeah. is worth continuing to do. Right um, on. And this is 
all partially a subtle plug for the the whole idea that we've started to brew yeah. that we're eventually going to raise up a micro grant of our own as part of the Humanity Against Disease project. And you all listening can be part of the process where we're going to try and give money to a research lab after we decide what type of research you'd like to see done. And then we're going to find researchers like Dr. Ingram here who are going to do some science and then they can come on and tell us a little bit about it and we can kind of see how the process unfolds for better or for worse. Yeah. And we'll make sure that those research articles are free on our website whenever they get published. (laughs) I love it. And there's another resource that is relatively new, but to at least the biological sciences, is something called BioArchive. And uh, maybe you can link to this in the podcast notes. But So this is something that I loved about the the mentorship that I received at at Berkeley from uh, Mike Eisen. So obviously, he helped found Public Library of Science, which was the first completely open access publishing journal, all online. So he indoctrinates absolutely everybody who comes into his lab as to open access only all the time. Wow. One of the problems even though with public library of science is that they try to do the best that they can, but there's still Mm -hmm. potentially a six month or longer turnaround for publication. So when a researcher is, like I said, completed their project and created a story and, or been able to frame the story, not create the story, (laughs) frame the story about a new piece of understanding of biology, you write up a manuscript and then you submit it to a journal for peer review. Mm -hmm. And this process takes time. So it'll go to an editor and then the editor will decide whether they want to send it out to review or not. Mm -hmm. They'll, They'll have to identify relevant reviewers. They'll send it to those reviewers. Those reviewers aren't working for them so and aren't being paid so they're mm-hmm. going to have to give them some amount of time to fit this in between all the other research and science that they're doing they'll eventually give the recommendations and reviews back to the editor the editor will look over them they'll decide whether or not they're going to tell the researcher if you make these changes we'll probably accept it then it'll go back to the researcher. And sometimes there are really long experiments that are recommended or required mm, in order yeah. for publication. And so the researcher will do these changes and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then like all of a sudden it's a year later from wow. when you had an original manuscript that for the most part was a lot of new knowledge. It just maybe wasn't perfectly polished and had a complete story mm-hmm. yet. And so... In that time, this is where the bioarchive comes in, is that there are, um, it's what's called a preprint archive. Mm -hmm. And so when you are complete with, if you're a scientist and you're complete and done with your project and ready to submit for peer review, Mm -hmm. you can post that manuscript on a preprint archive. And that information that you have that is maybe, you know, somewhere between 85 to 99% complete and done is going to be immediately available for free for the scientific community, for your colleagues, for people you talk to at conferences who are interested in your work. Uh You can link them directly to the, the cohesive story of what you've done so far. And so that accelerates. This is something that preprint archives have been really popular amongst computer science and mathematicians uh-huh. and physicists for a long, long time mm-hmm. on something called archive.com. And so archive was actually, when I was in grad school, bio archive didn't exist yet. Uh-huh. And so my, <laughs> it was really funny because I was one of the only biology papers on wow. <laughs> archive.com, but I, I, published a preprint of my article, of my uh, PhD work on archive, and then received a call from, or an inquiry from someone at National Geographic who wanted to talk about and write an article on my research before it had even been reviewed. Whoa, that's awesome. And it was great. And And then it ultimately took about six months before my 
publication was accepted Mm -hmm. and then published on PLOS, Public Library of Science. And so it was something that just could accelerate so much science amongst individual, uh, amongst scientists themselves, as well as for the community, for for the general public to have a better sense and better access Mm -hmm. to science as it's happening Mm -hmm. and as it's ready, which is amazing. So there's there's a lot of I'll I'll leave it to my old mentor Mike Eisen to to get into the nitty gritty details of what he thinks the the future of scientific publishing should look like but I I think that we are stuck in this a bit of an archaic system mm-hmm. that was designed a long, long time ago before we had the kinds of machine learning algorithms to look through papers and identify research topics uh, that are relevant to us. People used to literally have to walk into a library and look through the um, the card catalog or whatever. Yeah, the yeah. card catalog <laughs> just to find the journal that they were interested in. And then the, each journal wow. they would have to open and look at the contents of that particular journal. Wow. And then they would have to, I mean, it's that is not what we do now. Yeah. yeah. Now we use PubMed and I say, I am interested in, let's say, mind control parasites. And I will be able to find toxoplasma and cordyceps and all these other things that are these fascinating uh, whole plethora of things that other normally wouldn't necessarily be, be easily together. findable. So it's it's really an amazing new world and it's about time science catches up. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, a lot of the things that are problematic now made more sense then, like going to a private publishing firm when like these journals had to be printed and bound and shipped out to libraries all over the country. Now that makes a little more sense. Nowadays, most I don't know about most, but a lot of journals don't even have a physical presence anymore. Yeah. You just go online. That's true. And yeah, like the act of doing a literature search now takes like an hour. Even and that's yeah. if you're that's if you're really going to put together <laughs> the best query possible and like organize things in brackets and use the mesh terms and all these other things. People are probably not going to care about. But <laughs> it used to be probably an all day ordeal or an all weekend ordeal to try and get those papers together. Yeah. So. And that's if you were blessed enough to be close to a well-stocked library. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were screwed if you had to start doing a bunch of interlibrary loans. It probably involved, I bet it involved fax machines or the (laughs) mail. Mail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was really awesome. As somebody who identifies as a non-scientist, I learned a lot more about how research gets put together and how there is that passion and spark of scientists just being curious and asking questions, but there's so much more that goes into it. So thanks for explaining that. (laughs) Yeah, sure. My main recommendation ultimately to people who are considering going into a PhD program is if anyone can talk you out of it, don't do it because it's real hard. (laughs) (laughs) But if you have the passion, if you have the Mm -hmm. spark, if you want to do science and answer these questions more so than anything else, including making money, because we don't, Mm. uh, (laughs) you should not do it. (laughs) Or find something else to do until you realize that, no, this is what I want to (laughs) do. 